Good morning, church. It is a new year, and as we go into the new year, one thing that is constant is that Jesus Christ is our living hope. We don't know about everything else. It's going to change what we don't. One thing, God and His character will not change, right? It's going to be looking at this morning. There was a churchgoer who was talking to his neighbor when the neighbor asked him, you know, I see that you go to church, and I'm kind of curious. What do you believe? What do you believe? And the churchgoer replied, well, I believe what my church believes. Okay, the neighbor pressed, and what does your church believe? Man answered the same thing, I believe. (laughs) The neighbor, with a tone of irritation in his voice, then asked, okay, what do both of you believe? Well, we both believe the same thing, (laughs) the churchgoer said. What do you believe? Would you do better than our church-going friend? After much research and many interviews with Christians in in this country, uh, George Barner had this to say. He said, the Christian church is becoming less and less theologically literate, and many church attenders today do not really know what they believe. And someone may quickly argue, theology? Who needs it? That's just for Bible college students and seminarians and ivory ivory towers. Listen, you're doing theology every single day. Every time you make, make a moral decision, you're doing theology. Every time you attend worship service, you're doing theology. Every time you process and form an opinion on the news you hear, you are doing theology. See, this dichotomy between theology and practical living is false. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, theology is practical. If you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean you have a lot of wrong ones. Theology, simply put, is a study of God and what God has to say and how he's revealed himself. Because what we believe about God determines our reality. Theology matters. And church, what joins us together is not so much our model of ministry or the style of music or any other secondary issue. What joins us together as a church is our theology. What we believe. And that introduces us to a new sermon series on beliefs that define who we are. Well, why this series on theology and what we believe? Well, the day in which we live resembles a vast, uncharted, stormy sea. It can be tumultuous. Huge changes have been and continue to sweep across our nation. A major shift has taken place in our culture, radically redefining truth, morality, and spirituality. It says, Bob Dylan put it, great theologian, joking in the last part. He said, come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone." If your time to you is worth saving, and you better start swimming, 
or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changing. We're in the ocean. Our world has changed and is changing. Politically correct is supreme. Relativism is the only absolute. We need to admit that the waters around us have grown. We need direction in these uncharted waters. The only hope that a sailor has of surviving a storm and navigating a new and uncharted ocean is to have a fixed reference point that enables the sailor to know where he is and where he is headed. They need a star, and in the northern hemisphere, it is the north star, Polaris. Well, in the same way, church, we need a star in the sky to help us navigate our life's ocean, a star to guide us in life's stormy sea. And that's why I've chosen to call this new sermon series that we're in, True North. True North. Because true north, of course, is a fixed point on the globe. True north is, is different than magnetic north, which is the direction that a compass needle points to as it aligns with the Earth's magnetic field. We're talking about a, 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 tr- a fixed point, a true north, because what we believe, that becomes our reference point. That becomes our fixed point as we go through life. Now, the catalyst for the sermon series was prompted by the initiative from the team of elders and pastors to prayerfully consider and move towards aligning ourselves with the Evangelical Free Church Association. You're going to hear more on this in the, in the months ahead through sermons and weekly epistles and other forms of communication. You need to stay attuned to this so you know what's going on. And so in this series, we'll be using the Evangelical Free Church of America's statement of faith to guide us. Not necessarily point by point, but certainly the block and the summary statement and where it's taking us. But I want us to get this. This is a timely series for more than that. It is an opportunity to work through what we believe in order to keep us grounded, centered on the truth, for that is what defines us. We are what we believe. We behave of what we believe. We think. We do. We respond all to do with what we believe. And so a study such as this helps us overcome any wrong ideas. It can help us to make better decisions. It can grow us as a church. It can grow us as Christians. What do you believe? How would you answer that? Well, with that, that long, though needful introduction, that's all that was. That is all free. Turn with me in your Bibles now to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Go to Old Testament book of Isaiah. If you want to know where that is, go to, to the Psalms, open it up to that, and then take a right, and you eventually get to Isaiah. It's a big book, 66 chapters. We're going to look and focus on chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. Now, let me give you a, a real brief context of Isaiah chapter 40. I'm not going to get all the details into this, but kind of summary statements here. In chapter 40, um, we see that God uh, delivered Judah from the Assyrians, but not from um, Babylon. 
And so, as we come to Isaiah chapter 40, this is a low time for the people of God and being captured and taken off into exile. And what they believed about God was critical for their survival, us too. And the questions on their minds seem to be, has God forgotten his people? Can God deliver his people? Does God want to? And so the prophet Isaiah, in speaking for God, directs them to their fixed reference point. He directs them to their true north. He reminds them that there is one God who is the creator of all. It's the opening statement of the article of a statement of faith is that there's one God who's the creator of all. And that's the theme, really, that runs through Isaiah chapter 40. And that's why our study on what we believe must begin with God. That's my first statement this morning. It all begins with God. It all begins with God. In the beginning, God. It tells us in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Now, I heard of one preacher who was going through Genesis, I guess, and, 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 and he spent his entire message on that one phrase. He couldn't get out of that one. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, me, us, God. It all begins with God. And so Isaiah picks up this thought of God's creative power to remind the people that their identity and security is in God who is sovereign over all things. All right, so I hope you're in your Bibles. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to look at verse 12. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? In other words, no one has ever advised God either in his work of creating or in the administration of the worlds. All right, he continues, verse 13, he asks some more questions. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who has instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Do you see it? Who has? Whom did? Who was it? The answer is no one. No one. God is limitless in knowledge. No one shows God how to understand things. No finite human being can understand the infinite God and how he does things. No one tells God what to do. No one makes suggestions to him. No one. No one. Why? Well, as our statement says, he's the, he's the eternal self-existing God. We believe in the eternally existent God. What does that mean? It means no one created God. He was always there. I don't know about you, but to try and, and, and wrap my, my mind around that, I, I, can't, I just can't quite do it. But let's think this through logically. Let's think this through logically. If God didn't exist in eternity past, there would be nothing today. The fact that you exist means that there was something that always existed and was not created. You cannot create anything, you know, anything out of nothing. Someone had to be the creator. And God has always existed. 
It all begins with God, the self-existent one. Remember um, when, when Moses encountered God in Exodus 3.14, and, and God said to Moses, he wanted to get him all straight on his perspective, and God came to Moses and he said, I am that I am, Exodus 3.14. I am that I am. God is saying there, I exist because I exist. I am who I am and not whatever you want me to be. J.B. Phillips expressed it this way. He said, to many people, God has been captured, tamed, and trained to their liking. And so we all have kind of created this, in our own minds, a picture of God. Reminds me of a little boy who was stretched out on the living room floor with, with paper in front of him. And he had crayons and pencils. He's intently working on his piece of art. And he's drawing something. He's coloring it. And his dad noticed how focused and intent this little boy was on what he was drawing. And so he comes to his son. And he goes, uh, you know, son, what are you drawing there? And the little boy, without even looking up, he says, I'm drawing a picture of God. His dad was a little taken aback. He said, well, son... No one knows what God looks like. The little boy without missing a beat says, well, they will when I'm finished with this picture. <laughs> well, I ask, what is your picture of God? What are you drawing? What comes up in your mind? And is it the picture given to us in the Bible? I cringe, honestly, I cringe when I hear people say things, I don't like to think of God that way. No, no, no. I like to think of God as fill in the blank. Honestly, it doesn't matter what you want to think about God. What does God say about himself? Not some picture. We, come we were created not to worship a God created by our mind, but to worship the creator God. And, 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 and often we've reduced God to our own imagination. And a low view of God is responsible for much of our problems today. In the church and outside the church. Honestly. And then you add to that our big thoughts about ourselves and self-preoccupations. And you have a recipe for a disaster. Like how Jen Wilkin put it. She said, Our primary problem as Christian men and women is not that we lack self-worth. Not that we lack a sense of significance or purpose. It's that we lack Awe. Let that sink in. Awe helps us worry less about self-worth by turning our eyes first toward God and then toward others. And then she says, it also helps establish our self-worth in the best possible way. We understand our insignificance within creation and our significance to our Creator. Now, I might say it this way. In order to determine who I am, I must first gaze in awe at I am. At God. It all begins with God. You see, in, in, our, in our search to discover who we are, the key is not so much who I am, but who God is. The great need for the church today is an awe of God. An awe of God. Church, we've lost it, not just here, big church, throughout the country. We've lost this. We need to embrace what a God. 
Because everything begins with God. All right, I could spend the rest of the sermon on that. I go to my next point, though, is God is not dependent on anyone or anything. God is not dependent on anyone or anything. God is the only independent being in the universe. All of us are, in deep, are, all of us are dependent on him. That's where Isaiah goes next. Look with me at verse 15 of Isaiah 40. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Now, the two metaphors used there in verse 15, drop in the bucket, dust on the scales. And they're powerful expressions of insignificance and triviality and inconsequential. Because in that day in the marketplace, they wouldn't bother with a, a minute drop of water in the measuring bucket or little dust on the scales when meat or, or fruit was weighed. The drop of water or the dust don't even register on the scale. From God's perspective, as impressive as a nation, as a superpower may be, they don't even register on God's scale. Well, Isaiah continues, verse 17. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Now, let's not go further than what this is saying here. Um, God loves the nations. They are valuable to God because the nations are comprised of people. So he's not saying they're not valuable to God. God sent his son to die for all people. All nations. God commissioned his disciples, right, to go out all into the world, all the nations, and preach the gospel. And someday from every tribe and every people group and every nation, every language, uh, people will be gathered together to worship with one voice the Lamb of God who was slain. So, so people in these nations are valuable to God. He's not saying they're not. What he is saying here, though, that these nations are nothing without him. All of these nations exist at one time or another. Why? Because of God's sovereign choice. And as quickly as they may rise up in power, they can be taken down. Even the most powerful on earth are contingent dependent on something else. God, though, is not contingent dependent on anyone or anything. That's how big he is. And so if we embrace the truth that it all begins with God, and that he's not dependent on anything or anyone, then we really would give up such foolishness as trying to make God manageable or controllable. And that really what brings out Isaiah's deepest sarcasm here in verses 18 through 20. I can't go into a lot of this here, and I'm not even going to read the verses. You can check it out for yourself. But this point here in verses 18 through 20 is just how foolish it is to try and make a God out of earthly material. That a God made even by skilled workers can't even stand up by itself. The folly of idolatry is, is setting up an idol that's only going to fall over, whatever your idol might be, whatever picture of God you have in your mind, it's going to fall over. Now, why would anyone settle for a substitute when the true and living God has made himself known? Well, because a God we create in our own minds doesn't demand anything of us. Because we all have this compulsion, we really do, we all have this compulsion to create a God who is manageable, 
that would go along with our views, my views of, of morality. See, the truth is, most people don't want to have no God. They just want something that allows them to believe what they want and live any way they choose. And we live like that, and we're independent of him, and we're in a lot of trouble. Because we were made, and we function best, when we live in dependence upon the God who created us. All right, next statement. God is sovereign in power. God is sovereign in power. Isaiah here, he argues for God's transcendence. And Dan used it earlier in his thoughts. Uh, And the word transcendence is, is a big theological word. It simply means that God is distinct from his creation. He's distinct from his creation. He's greater than the created world. Now, now stay with me on this, that he is Lord over creation. Look at verse uh, 22. It says, he, God, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. See, God fills all space because he's everywhere, but he's distinct from his creation and from his creatures. Not everything is God. That's pantheism. And you can, you can Google it and check it out. That's pantheism. For example, there was this young boy who was looking at the moon. He asked his mom, Mom, is God in the moon? And the mother said, yes, God is in the moon. Drives a little further, and, and, and then he says, is God in the snow? Yes, the mom answered, God is in the snow. The boy said, I'll go one more here. He says, is God in my tummy? Well, yes, I suppose he is, the mom responded. And then her son said, well, God wants a cookie. <laughs> you see how absurd it gets. It's how absurd it gets. We need to be precise here. Some say that the, that the tree is God and the rock is God and the moon is God and, and you're a God because everything is God. Heresy. Heresy. Not everything is God. He's a transcendent God who sits above the circle of the earth. He's not trapped by time or by space. He is above and beyond everything. Now, again, we must be precise. This is not to say, because God is above all of creation, that he's now uninvolved in creation, that he kind of pulled away and he's not active in what's going on in the world. There is a belief called deism. You can check that one out too. Deism, and many of our founding fathers of our country were deists. They were. There is this belief, what's deism? There is this belief that God created everything and then he walked away from all of it. And he kind of just lets it go on its own. He's not involved in what's going on in the world. It's kind of pictured as God. He wound up the world as he'd wind up a clock and then it's been running down ever since. It's kind of like the, (laughs) this is where my mind just goes. It's kind of like the maintenance package everyone tries to sell you. You buy an appliance and you're asked, would you like to spend some more money and buy a a maintenance package to go along with that just in case it breaks down? And I go, no, I really want my refrigerator not to break down. 
<laughs> so that sounds reasonable. But the truth is, we live in a throwaway society. I mean, if you get five years out of that printer, consider yourself lucky. You should have bought the maintenance package. It breaks down. You want to be able to fix it. Listen, that thought is not applied to the universe. The universe is being held up by God. He made it. It's not all breaking down. He made it. He will maintain it. It is all under God's control. All of it. I don't know about you, but that can help me sleep at night. God sits above the circle of the earth. And from his vantage point up there, I love this, humanity looks like grasshoppers. It's not flattering. All the people of the earth were their monumental egos, and to God, they are like grasshoppers. Small thoughts of us, big thoughts of God. Puts life in perspective. William Beebe, the naturalist, used to tell this story about Teddy Roosevelt. At Sagamore Hill, after an evening of talk before retiring for the night to go to bed, the two would go out on the lawn and, and, and search the skies and see all that, that, that was out there and, and look for a certain spot of, of star-like light near the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. And Roosevelt would like to recite, well, you know, that's the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It's one of a hundred million galaxies. Consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. And it'd go on and on how big everything was in the, were in the heavens. And, and they'd look up the heavens for a few more seconds. And then, then Roosevelt would grin and say, well, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. <laughs> it puts it in perspective. And Isaiah's driving this point home. Big thoughts of God, small thoughts of ourselves. And too many in power think that they're in those positions because they're hot stuff. They're really subject to God's sovereign will. Isn't that what he says? Any moment here, verse 23, he can bring princes to naught and reduce the rulers of this world to nothing. The God who upholds everything according to his sovereign power controls the length of time any politician, king, ruler, professor, pastor, or any other kind of office will remain in their position. No one can spend one day longer than God chooses. And nothing will run beyond the boundaries of God's purposes because He is God. What a God! Again, that helps me sleep at night. Because when we begin to lose heart, and we all do, we start to get filled with anxiety, and I do. But we cower in fear. God says, look up. Look up. Literally. He says that, verse 26. Lift your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all this? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power, mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. And I thought, you know, we were made by God to look up. 
That's how we were created. My dog, Adler, he doesn't look up. (laughs) He wasn't created to do that. We, as God's image bearers, we're created to look up. And he wants us to lift up our eyes and see all that he has made and go, wow, what a God. We can't even count the number of stars. And God names them. He names them. He'll not lose one of them. Now, don't miss it. Just as the stars remain in place by the controlling purposes of God, there is absolutely nothing else that is out of God's control. Nothing. What a God. All right, how should we respond? Well, Isaiah first addresses how not to respond in verse 27. It's kind of uh, interesting that that they're going to respond to this after he's talked about all of who God is. But look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? There's a real danger for us, is there not, to lean in this direction as we look at all the happenings in the world. Lord, can you see what's going on? Have have you disregarded us? Have you forgotten us, your people? That's a real danger. So we go up when things are going well nationally, politically, and economically. And we go down when things are not going so well nationally, politically, and economically. And we find ourselves on this roller coaster. I say we. Now I'm not suggesting it all at all, that these things are not important. That's just not the issue. It's our beliefs that define who we are. It's been said our theology drives our lives. What we know and understand about God impacts everything, everything we think, say, and do. What do you believe about God? Well, we're saying the only God, the creator of all things, who is eternally existent, sovereign, and power, That means something. He knows what he's doing. That's true on a macro level, and that's true on a micro level. The transcendent God is also a personal God. And we're going to look at that some more next week when we look at Psalm 139. But he's a personal God. Isaiah here, he says, verse 28, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. The God who holds the stars holds up his weary people. He knows our way. Nothing is hidden from God. And it's sheer foolishness to think that God does not know or does not care about what is right. How not to respond? By complaining. God's still working with me on this one. And I'm probably meddling. Let's go to the next one. How we're not to respond. Look at verse 30. Even youth grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. All right, how should we not respond? Let's not put our hope and trust in people. They'll stumble and fall. What should we do? How should we respond? Verse 31. Verse 31. But those who hope in the Lord, those who hope in the Lord, or those who wait on the Lord, it says, will renew their strength. How do we practically acknowledge what a God? What's the answer? Wait. I don't like to wait. 
wait. What does it mean to wait? I can get into a lot of things this means. Kind of just to boil it down, put it bottom, bottom shelf here. It means we treat God as God. It means we treat God as God by saying, not my will, but your will be done. And, and, and every area of our life. Not my will, but your will be done. As Elizabeth Elliot loved to say, the hardest thing to give is you. Can you wait on God? Can I wait on God by giving up the right to how my life should be lived? As we go into 2022, are you prepared to say, God, you made me. You, it all begins with you. You're the one who's sovereign in power. You know how I'm made. God, it's all about you. You can have the totality of my life. Do you dare say that in 2022? God, you can have the totality of my life. You see, what we believe about God is transforming. It means we can worry less and relax more. Worry thinks I can do a better job. Relax means I know I really can't. So wait on God's timetable. Wait, wait in expectation that the God who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth will fulfill all of his promises. Wait on God. Wait. Many years ago, a beautiful young girl caught my eye. And in her home, the rule was no single dates for the first year. And that was Tough rule for me. I didn't like that rule. But you know, I followed that for the entire year. Why? Well, shortly after that, she went off to college for a year, and we had this long-distant relationship. And, uh, and, and we, we kept the relationship going through writing letters. Yes, writing letters, putting a stamp on it, and putting it in the mailbox. Some of you, that, you don't understand that. Why didn't I just hit send? <laughs> And, and, and we had to make long-distance phone calls, not just myself. I had a bill to prove it. Long-distance, very expensive. Amen. Yeah. Did it for a whole year. Whole year, separated. Why? Was she worth the wait? Yes, yeah, she was. 38 years later, and yes, yeah, she was definitely worth the wait. Church, God is worth the wait. He's worth the wait. Because if we wait on God, it tells us here, it says, we will, He will renew my strength. Do you need your strength renewed? And then He promises, notice here, we will soar, we will run, we will walk in verse 31. It isn't walk, run, soar. It's soar, run, walk. I think that's opposite. I think it's anticlimactic. But the point is endurance. Sometimes we'll soar, but we won't always soar. Sometimes we'll run, but we won't always run. But we'll always be able to walk and not grow faint. Always be able to get through anything that comes our way because what a God. So wait. Wait on God. Trust Him. 
trust in him, keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's up to him if we soar or if we run, but we are guaranteed to walk and not be faint. God is worth the wait. So wait. It's better than the alternative. There's an old sailor who repeatedly got lost at sea, so his friends said, we're getting kind of tired of rescuing you. We're going to give you this compass, and we want you to use it. So the next time he went out on his boat, he followed their advice, and he took his new compass with him. As usual, he became hopelessly confused, and he was unable to find land, and once again, he was lost at sea, and his friends had to come out and rescue him. Irritated and frustrated, they said, we gave you your compass. Now, why didn't you use it? You could have saved us a lot of trouble. And the sailor replied, I didn't dare use it. I wanted to go north, but as hard as I tried to make the needle aim in that direction, it just kept pointing, pointing southeast. <laughs> so I tossed it aside. The stubborn sailor was so certain he knew which way was north that he tried to force his own personal persuasion onto his compass. Unable to do so, he tossed it aside as worthless and failed to benefit from the guidance it offered. And I go, how many of us do that? I mean, have you lost your way? Well, what are you going to do when you lose your way? I mean, you can persist in doing it your own way. I mean, how's that working for you? Or you can embrace the greatness of our God. So, church, look up. Look up and see what a God He is. And let's help each other look up in 2022 and see and proclaim what a God. Let's pray. God, it's almost difficult to find the words to say after we've been talking about how great you are and nothing I'm going to say can really elevate that. You're already there. I pray, God, you challenge us to the core of our being. Stop bringing you down to a manageable place in our life, but instead to let you be God. And to see your greatness. And to marvel at that greatness. And to stand in awe of you. And as we sing this closing, very familiar song, God, I pray. That it would just remind us of how important it is for us to really go out of church every single week and go, wow, what a God. What a God. And may we take that with us. Each and every day this week and throughout this year, I pray, even if we get off, we get back to the true north and remember how great you are, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.